0: You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. And amen. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus. We're going to continue our series in Jesus on every page. We've been spending uh, the fall season. Uh, we'll be spending the winter and spring. Uh, walking through the scriptures, and so we've we've touched on Exodus, or Genesis and Exodus, and we'll continue to work through the scriptures together, looking at not every verse, not every story, but the major themes of the scriptures, and also how Jesus uh, reveals himself on every page, that it's not a book of just fables and moralisms, but it's about Christ who's come to redeem and restore um, all things. And so there's ways we can read the scriptures well. There's ways we can read it not well. And so hopefully as we've kind of walked through all of this, we see this God who continues to redeem people, continues to bless, continues to forgive, continues to shower with grace, even when his people are stubborn, like all of us and uh, not me, but mostly you. But um, uh, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll read uh, the first Uh, 21 verses there. And this is the the 10 commandments you probably should be familiar with if you've been around the church at all or seen the movie. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this morning and I would like to uh, suggest this morning is that when we look at things like the Ten Commandments or commandments or rules or behaviors that come from the Christian Church that's often the time when the broader culture even Christians have a really hard time with Christianity they they say we're small-minded we're judgmental we're bigoted right we have too many rules and regulations we want to control people we want to tell them how to live their lives we want to tell them how things should be and what relationships they can be in and it's typically when we talk about things like this, commands, rules, morals, that people get very uncomfortable, that this goes against this pursuit of a tolerant, free society. You're putting rules on people, you're crushing people, and it doesn't seem fair. Maybe you've heard that in some way, shape, or form, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe inside the church, maybe outside the church. And yet I want to submit to you this morning that even when we talk about what it means to be tolerant or accepting or loving is that nobody is purely tolerant. And let me use an illustration about let's imagine you joined a cat community, that you believe cats are the hope of the world that cats are going to save the world. And you join this community and it's all about your feline friends. It's all about how can we make sure that cats are on the forefront of salvation and how we can get more of catness into the world. But something happens to you and you have this conversion experience and you realize that cats are actually from the devil. Maybe you encounter Jesus, maybe you don't, but you realize that cats are not as great as you think they are, and they actually work against the salvation of all things. And as you begin to voice these things to your community, a feline community, they begin to go, Ryan, we love you, and we'll continue to accept you, but try to keep your opinions you know, to the side, because we really believe in catness. We really believe that cats are the hope of the future. But as time goes on, you begin to voice your disdain, your disgustedness with cat people because you realize you're more of a dog person. And you keep sharing that time and time again. But over time, they just gently, lovingly say, Ryan, it's probably time for you to leave our community. You don't believe what we believe. Right, And isn't that kind of a very silly picture of of tolerance, right? Is that, that everybody's tolerant to a point. We all have guardrails. We all have boundaries. We all have rules to decide who's in, or who's out. And nobody is fully, purely, perfectly tolerant, and open-minded. It always comes to a point. We always hit a moment where you say, yeah, you, you're kind of in, but you're not fully in. You're not as pure as us. You don't think as pure as us. You don't keep the rules like we do. And I think every time we look at commands and uh, things like the 10 commandments and, and behaviors and rules in the scripture, we have this kind of gut reaction of like, how do we do this? How do we consider these things? Because we know that in every community, in every society, rules are good. Laws are good. There are metal guardrails on the highway because I can guarantee you there was a very smart person that said when a car flew off the, over the edge and, and probably was destroyed, maybe we should put in some metal guardrails to protect that from happening. Guardrails are good. That's why we tell our kids don't play in the streets when cars are in the streets or don't eat glass. It's not good for you. Guardrails are good. Laws are good. It's for our flourishing. It's for our Joy. That's why they've been put in place. And so, as we look at God and, and Israel and the law here in Exodus uh, 20, I think it's important also that as we come to the text as individuals and as families, is that all of us have this kind of uh, what I call a Luke 15 response to, to laws and scripture. It's Luke 15, remember the parable of the prodigal son? It's like you have the younger brother that's just all about, you know, it's about rock and roll and just doing whatever you want, just living for yourself. And I'm just going to go and squander the wealth and do whatever I want, right? There's no rules. Those are just oppressive, right? And then there's also the big, the older brother, right? Who stays at home with dad, who follows all the rules, does all the right things. And then when the older brother, the younger brother comes home, he's mad because he's like, dad, I've done all the right things. And he's angry, right? We all have tendencies when we think about laws and rules. Is Am I the one who's, who's like, no, forget all those things. That's just oppressive. That's not how we get to a tolerant society. Or is it all about the rules? And anger starts brewing up right? And some of us grew in church traditions like that, right? It was all rules. It was all regulations. Do this. Don't do that. You never heard about grace. People weren't patient with you. You never heard about forgiveness. Or it was all grace and it was all forgiveness. And living lives of obedience and holiness didn't really matter. Live and let live. Do what you want. Doesn't matter. Grace, grace, right? But I think there's somewhere in between that we begin to understand if we look at the flow of the story and where God is giving the commands to Israel, that it's not either or, but it's both and, that these commands are good for us. They're for our joy. It's for the flourishing of our lives. It's for the flourishing of our communities. It's for the flourishing of our neighbors. So let me ask the question this morning, and we'll just take a few moments to unpack this together, but what what do we do with these Ten Commandments? What purpose do they serve serve Israel many, many thousands of years ago? And what purpose do they serve us uh, today? And so first, I want to give you a word before the word. And what do I mean by that? A word before the word. Well, I didn't read chapter 19, but chapter 19 gives us some context of understanding what these commandments really are about. And if you read in chapter 19 the chapter before chapter 20, um, it says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. Their Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so before the Ten Commandments come, Moses goes up to the mountain and talks to, to God, and he's going to tell him, hey, I want you to go speak to the broader community, because most of the interactions with God and Moses to this point are individual, just him and God. What do I need to do? How do I deliver my people? And you remember a few chapters ago, as we looked at last week, that the, the Red Sea has been parted, God's people have been rescued from Egypt, and now he's saying, hey, I have a word for you, and it's something about this. It's about your vocation in the world. Who are you to be as my people? Now that I've rescued you, you caught that rescued you, right? I brought you on eagle's wing. I've, I saved you. I, 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 I released you from oppressive Egypt. Now I've, I've brought you out into the promised land. You are my people. I've shown you grace. I've shown you mercy. Now in light of that, what is your vocation in the world? Well, God tells Moses, it's to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Obedience is about listening to my commands, listening to what I say. Because what I say is good for you. What I say is for your thriving in the land because I've rescued you, because I've shown you grace and mercy. Now, in light of those things, go live in a pe- peculiar, particular way. Now, we again, we can read commands and go like, geez, well, here it is, because it's just like, just do what I say. But that's not the tone here, right? If your wife or your husband asks you to do something, you just say, no, I'm not doing that. Is that really loving to them? No, it's not. The answer is no. So that should have went over bigger. Um, but if you're, and we try to talk about this with our kids, it doesn't always go well, but when they don't listen to what we say, it's actually, guys, it's not just about yes and no. And, and this is a good move, right? We've all done this. Why do I have to do that? Because I said so, Right? And believe me, all your parents did that, and that's where you picked that up from, right? It doesn't work that well. It's just like, well, no, it's not because this is for your good, right? It's good that you don't punch your brother in the face. just goes better for everyone in the home and in your life, right? So obedience is, listen to my voice, because the one who's saying this is what life is, and this is how you flourish, always has good intentions for you. It's from God himself saying, follow these things, listen to my things, because I want good for you. And also keep my covenant, keep my covenants about going back to Genesis 12 where God shows up to Abraham. And gives them this covenant and says, through this family, you're going to be a blessing, right? Salvation is going to come through your family. And even in Galatians later, to, you know, thousands of years later in the New Testament, it's going to say that anyone that believes in Jesus is actually part of the family of Abraham. That same blessing that was given to Abraham is now ours in Christ. That you're to be a blessing people. You're supposed to cling to me and trust me. And then as you have experienced my redemption, now go be a blessing in every way, shape, and form in the world. That's your vocation. That's your identity. That's your calling. That's what it looks like to keep my covenant. Listen to my voice and go be a blessing, people. Look at all the blessings that God has shown you. Now go show that to the world and say, this is really good news. God comes to people that are undeserving. God comes to strangers and outsiders. God redeems. God forgives. God shows us grace that we don't deserve. Now go live a life of gratitude and act as if it's all true. Now, woven into this word before the word is this vocation, this calling, but also did you notice in verse 6, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Part of this calling is you are going to be priests, which means you are going to be mediators between heaven and earth. That's what a priest did. When a priest worked in the temple, he was the one who they'd come confess their sins. He's the one that stood in the gap between God and man to forgive them of their sins, to, to, to take in their sacrifices. Now we know in the New Testament, Jesus becomes that for us. He becomes our one and only and final sacrifice. He becomes the temple. But now as his people, you are the ones that stand as mediators in the world between heaven and earth to show the world what God is like, to offer sacrifices, as Hebrews would say, sacrifices of praise to the world. We have this holy vocation to give people a little glimpse, a little glimmer of what our God is like. This was always the calling of God's people. This is why God rescued them from Egypt. It wasn't just to give them a bunch of commands that they're going to fall on their faces, which we'll get to in a moment here, but to remind them, this is what it looks like to be my people in the world, to interact with God and to interact with your neighbors. This is what it feels like, what it looks like well, how it's embodied in the world. That's what I love about the the justice team. Really the justice team is just an extension of us asking the question as a church of how do we live and represent God well in our city and in our lives? How do we show the justice of God, the love of God, the mercy of God through our actions? It's an embodiment of that. It's actually just normal Christianity. Christianity. Like, no offense, Justice Team. Like, we love what you're doing, but you're just helping us just live as normal Christians. Like, this isn't like a, a weird side gig for like super spiritual people. It's just being Micah 6 people, it's just being Matthew 22 people. Like, it's not weird, it's just normal. Like that's who we are because we've seen the mercies of God. We've seen the grace of God. We've seen the love of God. And guess what? That means we should be merciful people. We should be loving people. We should be gracious people. We should, we've seen God heal. We've seen God redeem, So we should look around and go like, who needs help? Who needs care? Who needs love? Who needs grace? Who needs forgiveness? You get the point. So there's a word about vocation. There's also a word about motivation here. A word before the word, before we get to the 10 here in just a moment. A word about motivation. Notice with me in verse four, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then jump to chapter 20, our main text this morning. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Church, don't miss this. Rescue always comes before obedience. Grace always comes before law. Always. He's doing it right here. He's speaking a word to them saying, what's going to motivate you to live as kingdom of priests in the world? It's not listen and shut up and do what I say. And just so you know, as a parent, that doesn't work either. It's leading with love and grace and mercy, saying, I give you these laws, these commands, because I love you that much, and I want you to thrive. I want you to have joy. I want you to experience my abundance and my mercy and grace. Grace and redemption and rescue always comes before law. Always. And he's doing it here again. He's reminding them that you're not going to be able to pull this off unless you get deep into my rescue. You get deep into the understanding of what I'm redeeming you for, what I'm redeeming you from. He doesn't start with the commands. He starts with grace. Like the Bible starts with grace. God created, right? You didn't think that up. Like you're here because God created, (laughs) right? You're made in the image of God. He breathed life into you. That's all an act of grace. He didn't need you for anything, but out of his abundant grace and mercy, he says, I'm going to make a world. I'm going to make you. I'm going to give you this gift of life. I'm your creator that made all things. Even in that would owe us everything to God right? Like we didn't think this whole thing up. Like we're here because of grace upon grace, from creation all the way down to redemption. And it's also just amazing as we kind of go through the scriptures, we, we see these stunning verses like in Romans that we've uh, probably quoted a million times or I've quoted a million times. Um, in Romans 5, you know, the Apostle Paul, thousands of years later says, for, one, uh, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his, what, his love For us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For it is while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When you had no thought of God, no desire of God, no even idea of who God was, he died for us. He came to us. He rescued us. When Israel was in in the ancient world and God didn't, they didn't know anything about anything. He comes and rescues them. Why? Because he loved them. The Old Testament even says that. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were mighty and powerful? No, he loved them because he loved them. That's who he is. That's what he's like. That's how the whole thing works. So there's a motivation that, uh, of following these commands. It's, it's grace always before law. It's rescue before obedience. So what does this suggest about the Ten? What does this suggest about the 10? It it, it suggests that these 10 commandments aren't just a checklist for holy living, right? But it's a bigger calling, a vocation of how can I be a kingdom of priests? How can I live in such a way and, and follow God's laws and rules and obedience in such a way that I can give the world just a little glimpse of what this God is like and what he's up to in the world? How we can be mediators between heaven and earth and take our calling as kingdom of priests and a holy nation seriously. So a word about the 10. Now, what's interesting about the 10 commandments is that many of these commands have actually been mentioned in different ways and shapes and forms already in Genesis, already in Exodus right, the idea of murder, for example, right, it's already talked about in the Cain and Abel story, God's not just like, hey, now Israel, hey, this thing called murder, like, we should talk about this, not a good idea, right, like, this is like early, early stories, right, Cain and Abel, murder's not good, I don't like murder, I'm not into murder, right, all these things, adultery, lying, stealing, all these things, now, this is just being formalized, in a very particular way to help Israel, to help them thrive under God, to help them love their neighbors well. The, the community's forming, it's it's they're beginning to see more of who God is. It's now not just Moses talking to God, but now the communities involved. How do we live in the land now? How do we live as God's treasured possession? What does that look like? Right? This now has a, a formalized, a, a teaching, a body of teaching so they can understand and have something to go on to understand what sin actually looks like or when they're falling short what does it look like to really thrive with god we also know there's way more than 10 commandments in the scriptures right but these 10 are a way again to say how do we love god well how do we love our neighbors well Some would argue that the Ten Commandments, as they're broken down, there's a vertical relationship and there's a horizontal. Maybe you've heard that, right? The first four commands really have to do with the vertical relationship with God, right? About loving God, worshiping God, keeping God central. Even Sabbath would say that's about keeping, making God uh, number one in our lives, setting a a day aside to say, hey, for worship and and rest. And then the, the last six are about this horizontal relationship. How do we love our neighbors, right? And then in the middle, though, this is an interesting thing. And someone brought this out this week, which I thought was helpful, is that this fifth command about honoring your father and your mother kind of doesn't fit on either one, maybe. It is a way to obviously love God, honoring our our parents, of course. It is kind of a way to love our neighbors. But but often in the scriptures, when we talk about our family, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and kids and all that, it's not in the context of they're our neighbors, right? Neighbors is something else. And so right in the middle of this is the family dynamic, that family is important. One scholar said that maybe perhaps this is God's way of saying God needs to be priority and then flowing from that is our family and then flowing from that is our neighbor, I think that's a helpful way of seeing this, at least the way the scriptures are kind of laid out together, that a functional society needs the family to be intact. And here's why I say that. And again, I know there's a a lot of complexity to this, but but I will say this. um, Years ago, I I did some work in the prison system, and they've kind of bore this out many times. And some of you that are counselors may bore this out, but but almost nine times out of town, 90 to 95% of the time, most people that are incarcerated have had a broken family of some way, shape, or form. Family that, that fell apart, abuse, divorce, all kinds of things. Most of the challenges that kids experience in, in counseling situations, abusive situations, usually there's a, a family that's not intact, right? And I'm not saying that's the easy answer. It's not an easy answer. It, it, it's not. But but there is something to say that when that family unit falls apart, everything falls apart, Right? Like I'm 43 and I'm still feeling the weight of my parents getting divorced many, many years ago and the dynamic of that and and dealing with that hurt and that brokenness and that loss, right? It it affects everything. Family does does matter. And so this commands right in there just to say, hey, when that thing breaks down, a lot of things break down. A lot of things break down. And and I'll just say, and maybe this is too honest. I know this is going on the internet, but... I'll say as a pastor who kind of came through the back door of pastoral ministry is that I don't always like the the ways pastors have dealt with their families. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times it goes God, church, neighbor, family, That, that families often get the leftovers. And it's not a priority. It's, it's always like, well, I serve the church and they'll, they'll figure it out. Or I serve my neighbors, they'll figure it out. But I don't think that really works very well. And I, I've worked really hard to try to keep my family as a priority to say, even as an elder, we were called to you know make sure our family's in order and our, our family life's in order not just give everything to the church and everything to my neighbor that I have a little bit of leftovers for my wife and for my kids. So I think when that breaks down, I know my life breaks down, right? That's a sermon another time. But there's this vertical and there's this horizontal, there's this family dynamic of the commandments. Now, what I don't want to get lost in here this morning, because we could take hours unpacking each command, I'm not going to do that. But I want us to kind of see the granular nature of these commands and how they kind of work together. And one, one uh, Old Testament scholar named J.A. Moyer has some really good thoughts on the Ten Commandments. He says, if you look at the structure of the commandments themselves, is they really focus all of them on thoughts or desires, um, de- deeds, or I should say words and deeds. Thoughts, words, and deeds. So if you look at how the Ten are, even our vertical relationship, even our horizontal relationships, they have this idea of thoughts, right? What is, how do I think about God? How is God central to my life? That's where it starts, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above. What's my relationship with God, right? And so in the ancient world, there were all kinds of gods, gods of the sky, gods of the earth, gods of the water. Now the scripture would say there's only one true living God and God bore that out even in the plagues but we give our allegiance to something or someone, right? So the thought is that commandments use, or kind of use it as a diagnostic to think, what is central in my life? What do I ultimately bow down to? What do I ultimately sacrifice to? What do I ultimately give time to and affection to and love to and desire to? Is it God or something else? Who's primary in my life? Who's central in my life? It's got to start with God, not our neighbor, not society, not even my family right? So there's a, a reflection on thinking about how God works in my life. Now, there's also just this little correction or this little uh, a reminder you shall not make for yourself a carved image is that even when you're considering God, don't look at the, at the creation and go, well, that's what God's like. That's not wise, right? There was all kinds of gods in this time, in this ancient world that, you know, it looks like metal or it looks like wood or it looks like, you know, this carved thing. He's saying, be careful that you don't wrap up God in the creation because God is not bound by the creation. God is the creator God outside of creation. So don't let your imagination go crazy and start making images that you go, oh, that's what God looks like and that's what God's like. And here's how God God works. It's a reminder that God is separate from God the creation. That's what Romans 1 warns us about, right? They made these gods in in their own image. They didn't worship the creator God, but they worshiped the creation instead because the creation is a beautiful gift of God. It points to his glory. It points to his knowledge. It points to his wisdom, but we're not to bow down to the creation. We're not to worship the creation. We're to worship the one that the creation points to, the creator God. So be careful that you don't Come up with your own version of what God is like. When I've ministered to many people, and we're in this time, you know, where it's really, you know, cool to debunk your faith and, you know, um, uh, some call it deconstruction, but it's amazing when I talk to people and they start sharing about the God that they have in their minds or the God that they have in their hearts, and I go, I don't worship that God either. That God's a monster, Right? So they start describing, well, I'm just leaving the faith. I'm leaving this. I'm leaving this behind. Actually, what they're doing is kind of maybe reframing actually a healthier version of what God is and how God has actually revealed himself, not some version that our parents gave to you or some you know, weird church experience or some cult experience or something I saw on the internet or the way people treat each other, right? It's this, this kind of reality of like, yeah, that God's a, oof, should leave that God behind, right? But what happens is we create God in our own image, we create a God that we believe is this is how it should be and this is how it should look, right? Rather than how God has revealed himself to us. So there's a, a thought component to this. And then it gets down to you shall not name the uh take the name, verse seven, of the Lord your God in vain, but the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is about how do I speak my words about God? Do I cheapen God's name? All right? Is he just a name? among other names, right? But like here's, maybe you'll find this relevant, maybe not, but when you smash your thumb on with a hammer, you ever done this? It's, it's horrible. Um, I don't do it that often. I'm a pastor. I have pastor hands. I try to stay away from hammers. Um, but I've heard people, um, Nathaniel knows about hammers. Um, maybe you've used the Lord's name in vain when you smash your name with a hammer, you know? You can use your imagination how that works. Or or, or you've hurt yourself and you've just yelled out, Right. Now, why is that not what God wants? Because it cheapens his name, right? It's just a name above names. And so when you ask someone, you go, hey, why'd you yell Jesus's name? That kind of, you know, uh, I don't, that doesn't make me comfortable. Like when you smash your, your finger, like he is my savior, my Lord. Well, it's not, I didn't mean anything by it. You go, oh yeah, that's exactly the point. You didn't mean anything by it. It's just a name among other names. It's just a common name. It doesn't mean anything. There's not the God of heaven and earth. There's not the creator God, the redeemer God, the God of glory, the God of beauty. It's just a name above name. Ah, my, right? Just a common name. So don't take his name. Don't cheapen his name, right? How we use it, how we speak about God, Right? So there's, there's words that, that matter in these commands, right? How we use our words. And then it moves into to deeds, right? Um, get into to verse eight. And again, th- these are um, you know, about Sabbath, keeping the, the, the Sabbath day holy, right? How do we live our lives? How do we set aside a day that is different than all the other days to make God central in our lives? I know some of us grew up in traditions where Sabbath was just really hardcore. Um, I know Andy can tell some stories, you know, you only wore certain clothes and you didn't, you know, do certain things on, on Sunday. And and I know there's a, there's a very, um, I'll say godly impulse behind even that it's, Hey, how do we make this day different than all the rest? And so what happens in our weeks, probably for a lot of us is that our weeks just blend together and there's no difference, right? Sunday's just Sunday, Saturday's just Sunday. There's no no rest, there's no worship, there's no focus on on the Lord in any specific way. So it's just another work week, right? We'll just leave church, go work some more, go to right? But but the the way God created the universe and why he rested on the seventh was to give us a rhythm to say, "Hey, let's take a day, one day a week where you shut it down." It doesn't have to be Sunday necessarily. Sunday just seems to make a lot of sense for a lot of people, right? You might have a day off work, right? You go to church, you, you get our hearts and our minds focused on the Lord again for another week, but right, we maybe take a nap. It's very godly, you should, amen, right? Have some good food, get some fajitas in there, some guacamole, do it upright, right? Play, have fun, enjoy God's good creation, right? All those things. But what's a day that can make my week different than all the rest? There's a different weight to it, a different emphasis to it. It doesn't have to be legalistic or law-based or you got to wear certain clothes or not go to the grocery store or what. It may include those things. But, but there's something important about that in our deeds to say, who really sits on the throne of my life? Because I think the way we are workaholics is actually just shows what our gods really are. It's work, right? And we act as if we take a day off that somehow the world is going to crumble and your job's going to crumble. It won't, trust me. Now there are jobs, I get it. We have Dr. Burns here who's on call and yeah, babies are dying and we, we get all that. And like, he doesn't have a choice sometimes. But for most of us not answering that email, the universe will not go to pot, trust me. Even as a pastor, most things that come my way are not emergencies, right? You guys wanna make them emergencies, right? Is your eyes bleeding out? No, okay, you'll be good. I'll talk to you tomorrow, Okay. That's how that works. No. (laughs) So there's deeds that are part of this. There's, there's deeds about neighbor engagement in society of, of not only Sabbath, but, but notice here, adultery and murder and stealing and, and uh, how, how that hurts our neighbor. Like that's what this is for. This doesn't allow our neighbor to thrive. It doesn't allow us to thrive. It doesn't allow the community to thrive. If we're wanting to end the life of other people. And Jesus will even take that further and say, even if there's anger in your heart, be careful because that's the seed of murder. (laughs) And in a way, when we're angry with people, guess what? It's just like murder because guess what it does? It cuts them off. It's basically our way of saying, I wish you were dead to me. I don't have room for you. And then he'll take it even further with, with adultery and say, it's not just about cheating on your spouse or having you know fantasies or whatever, but it's also to say, if there's lust in your heart, it's like cheating because you're just living in a fantasy world with someone or something other than your, your, your spouse, not in a covenant relationship. The seed of lust is where adultery comes from. Nobody wakes up on a Monday and goes, you know, what, I'm just going to leave my wife and leave my, my kids. There's a seed of something there before, right? And so Jesus will get at the heart of of all those things, but think about how that helps the community flourish. I don't want to end life. I don't want to, I want to keep marriage intact and keep relationships healthy. I don't want to steal my neighbor's stuff, right? That's not ours, right? I don't want to live this life of I better, I need more. I need, I need more stuff. I need, I need that thing, right? Whatever that thing is, it's about deeds and how I think about my life and what I, my, my, my neighbors, What I owe this society, what I owe the people around me. And then, isn't it interesting how, when you get down to the bottom, in verse 16, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, it's about words again. How I cheapen God's word, his name, but also, how do I cheapen my neighbor's reputation? That's what bearing false is. Am I lying about them? Am I gossiping about them? Am I tearing them down? Am I holding grudges about them? That's how I use my words. It's how I use my language. So you have thoughts and desires and you have words and you have deeds. All these commands, whether with God or with each other, all work together. Words can build up. Words can tear down real quick. And then it ends with thoughts and desires. Did you notice that? Probably a command we don't talk about enough. You shall not, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or your male servant, or your female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Just confession time, I've never coveted my neighbor's donkey. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little further along than most of you, but that's just, they're awesome animals, but but it's a it's a desire, it's a thought, right? Covetousness is a, a thing that says, I need something that's better than God. I need my neighbor's stuff or my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's job or my neighbor's money or, or whatever it is. It's this thing that gets lodged in us to say, if I just had this thing, my life would be better. It's a deep seated desire. And here's what theologians have said for thousands of years, or at least, yeah, I could say thousands of years that have reflected on this. Usually we covet because we break the first command. God is not central in our lives. That's what Luther said. He said, the reason we covet, the reason we steal, the reason we murder, the reason we, we, we get after adultery is because God is not the greatest good and the greatest center part of our lives and our greatest joy. The thing that satisfies is the thing where true love is found. Because if it's not, my neighbor's going to be that thing. Something else is going to be that thing, Right? Their money, their house, their I wish I had a better XYZ is going to be that thing. That The vertical always shapes how we live in the horizontal. And actually, First John would say they actually work together because you can't say, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. That's actually a great way to hate God It's not loving your neighbor. Can't say you can't have one with the other. It's like, I'm really good at loving God, but I'm terrible at loving my neighbor. They go together, they work together, but they flow from one another. That's why these commands exist, because the rescue begins, grace begins. God's saying, hey, I love you. I want to be in fellowship with you. I've come to redeem you. Now, in light of those things, go live as if it's all true. Think about your thoughts and your words and your deeds. They all matter and they all work together. The Ten Commandments are this beautiful diagnostic of how is my life living before God? How am I living with my neighbor? Am I even considering them on a daily basis? What does that even look like? How is my family taking priority, if at all? How am I honoring my father and my mother? As I was working up this uh, sermon, I was thinking a lot about Captain America, as you do. And um, I realized that the subversiveness of the Marvel movies and I think why millions and millions and millions of people watch these stories and ingest these stories is because I think there's more going on with them. Um, And one of those examples is Captain America because Steve Rogers, the iconic Steve Rogers, the alter ego of Captain America, his desire and his life goal is to ask the question, what do I owe my neighbor? right? Have you seen the movies? That's what he's bent on. That's why he's so, when when things aren't going well, his whole thing is, what do we owe our neighbors, right? People that have even hurt us, right? How do we respond to people that aren't like us, that are different than us, even our enemies? And, and it's funny because if you look at Iron Man, right? His, 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 Uh, idea or his solution is always technology, right? That's going to be the the answer. We need more technology. We need more science. That's what's going to fix the world. But it's a great question to ask. And I've been marinating on that with these 10 and with Steve Rogers is what do we owe our neighbors? What do we owe God? What do we owe our families? And it's not that we're in debt to God, but it's to say, this is what the Ten Commandments do. That's how they work on us, to continually ask the question is, how is God central to my life? How am I considering the good and the flourishing of my neighbors? What does that look like? What do we owe each other? And believe me, in a very isolated and individualistic Western culture is we don't think enough about what do we actually owe our neighbor, right? We think about, well, what do they owe us, (laughs) the 10 commandments are so radical in that, that way It gives us a different way of seeing our neighbor, seeing God, seeing everything. And so I want to just land the plane with this, a word about now. Um, I want to give you a little bit of hope here this morning, um, is that we look at the 10 commandments and we just go like, well, that seems like a kind of a big chore. (laughs) How do we live this out? How do we obey God? How do we worship God? Well, love our neighbors. Well, love our families. Well, how does it, what does that even look like? Well, I love what the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our confessions says, he says, but can those converted to God, here's the question, obey these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only, I love this phrase, small beginning of this obedience, small beginning. That's what an obedience to Christ looks like. It's always small. it's incremental. It's little, it's not profound. It's just plodding along each day going, you know what? Thankful that God's grace is with me. I'm great. I'm going to fall down sometimes. I'm going to do okay sometimes, but it's small beginnings. That's what obedience with Christ looks like. I know some of us have never heard this before. It's always been this radical, like, you know, if you do have one bad thought, one do one bad thing, you're out, you're excommunicated, right? It's small beginnings on this side of heaven. It's just small. It's slow. It's painful. It's upwards and down. It's backwards and forwards, right? But here's what the beauty of the law does. Also, what the Heidelberg Catechism says is that no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Then why does God want them preached so poignantly? Why do we talk about these things? First, so that no longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness, and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. The law was always meant to show us how needy we are and how far we how far we fall and how much we need God's mercy and grace, his righteousness, that Jesus lived a perfect life. You and I couldn't live. He pulled off the 10 commandments in ways we couldn't. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to, when we see these things, it should lead us to repentance, lead us to confession. Go, man, I'm not loving my family. I'm not loving my neighbor. Well, but thanks be to God who throws me, shows me grace and mercy and forgiveness. That makes the gospel so sweet. And that's what he was doing to his people. Remember, it started with rescue. It started with, I already love you. I'm already for you. I've been faithful even when you're not. God knew who's going to fall. They're going to fall on their face time and time again. And we can fast forward. I'll give you one more just for the sake of time. We can fast forward to Romans 12. And Romans 12 gives us this dynamic as well. In Romans 12, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, hey, look at the mercies that have been shown to you. Look at all this goodness and all this grace and all this love. Look at that you're justified by faith. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing, no law can make that happen. In light of those mercies, now go live as if it's all true. This will be your spiritual act of worship. Grace before law, that's how it works in the Old Testament. It's how it works in the New Testament. It's how it works in our lives. Ephesians 1 to 3 are all about the gospel and how God has revealed himself and how he's chosen us and how he's loved us and how he's given us a spirit. And then chapter 4 says, in light of these things, go we'll live as if it's all true. I'm saying that part, but go we'll love as if it's all true, right? Grace before obedience. And we have to be thoroughly soaked in, marinated in this grace, or it's just going to be a constant. I'm never measuring up. I never do Right. But as we get this in our minds, we go, it's a joy to follow God. It's a joy to listen. It's a joy to obey. It's not this burden because I know that God is always after my flourishing, always after my good, always uh, giving me these guardrails so that my, my marriage can flourish and my relationships can flourish and my neighbors can flourish and the world can flourish. He's always after that because we have this, remember our missional vocation, our identity is this kingdom of priests in the world to give people a little glimpse of what this God is like it's not just the 10 commandments or a, a checklist of commands so that we can be the morality police and so that we can fulfill our calling as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation in the world to give people a little glimpse of what this God is like. And I think all of our arguing and all of our morality policing is actually showing what God isn't like, right? Why are we always starting with morality? I don't understand. That's not the gospel. That's not rescue. That's not good news. Like the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 with good creation that God made all things and made us in his image. That's where it begins. It doesn't start with sin. It starts with God giving us a gift that we didn't owe, that we didn't deserve, right? Okay, I don't want to get in trouble. But I think a lot of us understand that. And that's really good news for people like you and people like me who fall short all the time. Let me um, let me close um We've been walking through the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm just going to read the last little part of when they talk about the Ten Commandments. It says, God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. This is Israel. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't. And he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them.